Okay, welcome to TK Live. This is uh, Matt Taibbi, and I'm just looking for Glenn Greenwald. Uh, Glenn, are you here? So we are going to have, it's, Glenn is going to show up for the first hour of today's uh, talk. And I'm just having a Luddite moment where I'm having trouble finding him. Um, but he is surely here somewhere. So we're going to talk about uh, a bunch of things. And hang on one moment. Folks, I'm going to mute myself just for a second while I while I figure figure one thing out. Hang on a moment. Okay, he may just not be uh, just not be in the room, so I'm going to ping him and uh, see where he's at. And in the meantime, we can, I'll I'll just get started. Hold on one second. All right, so um, while I wait for uh, for Glenn to show up, I'm I'm, I'm going to get started and just talk about what um, some of the subjects I wanted to get to this week. Obviously, wrote a couple of pieces. They were kind of related this week. One was an interview with uh, Paul Thacker, who wrote uh, a British Medical Journal article. Um, they got fact-checked and essentially flagged for being problematic or for missing context, even though it was a correct, peer-reviewed, uh, legal-reviewed piece of journalism. And, um, you know, the really interesting part about that story, I thought, was the correspondence between the... Uh, the fact-checking agency leads stories and the editors of the British uh, Medical Journal who said um, essentially that uh, that missing context was a was a uh, a concept that had been invented by um, by Facebook to address uh, content that was true but problematic. Uh, or true, uh, but had an, an, an issue of some kind. Uh, oh, hold on a moment. Glenn, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Sorry, I'm a little hey, late. Hey, no problem. Out, 
I'm old, so no, no, no. We get here a little late. That's all right. That's all right. I, I I'm also kind of a luddite. I I I don't I don't know. I have trouble with uh, locating people on the on the site here sometimes. But thanks for coming. I'm happy to be here, and that's not about being a luddite. It's just because you're old. That's right. It, it's that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. I'm happy to be here. I think this is our first call-in session we've done together, so that's exciting. Yeah, this are is you, our first mono-a-mono thing, right? What's that? This is our first mono-a-mono thing. Exactly. Right? Usually I just talk shit behind your back, so it's an <laughs> exciting opportunity to be able to say it to your face. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I, I am liking uh, Colin. I don't know what your experience is. I um, I wasn't sure what to expect, but I think the the, the uh, conversations are uh, are really interesting. Usually, um, some of them have really gone on into some odd places, but that's been mostly a good, almost entirely a good thing. So, what's, what's your experience? Yeah, you know, I I mean, one of the things I I love most about early journalism in the internet age was the interactivity that it fostered. I would spend as much time in the comments section of my new blog that I created in 2005 talking to readers as I would having exchanges with other journalists or people with public platforms and often found it way more edifying because so, and like so many of the most important stuff I wrote early on came from readers who said, hey, have you seen this? Or you should take a look at that. Or, you know, they would say, I don't think this argument's very strong, and you would defend it, or you would say, you're right. And I actually kind of miss that. Um, you know, we get that on social media, but it's so much work to find the, the stuff that's substantive. So uh, this is the thing I like best about Colin is it really encourages a high level of interaction. You have to get the app. You have to go into the room. It doesn't encourage this kind of, like, drive-by insults. It encourages a, a good amount of thoughtful exchanges. So I, I think it's a really important form of accountability for journalists to have to hear from people that you're writing for and speaking to. Yeah, it's cool. You you end up talking to some people who are, you know, might be subject matter experts and you, what what you thought was a Q&A where they're sort of asking you questions that turns into an interview of them uh, at sometimes, which is kind of cool. But um, anyway, I know you're on limited time, so I want to get to the issue at hand, which is uh, you know, this, this whole rapidly exploding censorship thing. I know we we're always it seems like we're always talking about this, but it's just gotten crazier and crazier. You know, I watched your Rumble thing um, about Jen Psaki's press conference, and I I want to talk about this because I I feel like this is a a theme that people have not paid a lot of attention to in the last. And this goes back a while now. Um, this whole issue of uh, government pressure of private companies uh, to, you know, to tighten up or to, to do more content moderation. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the law about that? Because my understanding of that is pretty limited. I know there are a couple of cases like Bantam, B, Bantam Books v. Sullivan and Backpage v. Dart and, and stuff like that that uh, – address the idea that the government can't just sort of informally tell you um, to, to not say something. Um, but what, what are the constitutional issues involved there? Yeah, well, 
I think this has been a, a, an, a, an intensely overlooked part of the controversy that there is this oddity in the whole controversy over big tech censorship, which is that these big tech companies, Facebook and Google and Twitter, came out of a libertarian ethos. And I don't mean libertarian in the traditional sense of that word, but very specifically the spirit of a free internet. The reason that Silicon Valley enthusiasts were so excited about the internet was because it was going to liberate us from centralized corporate and state control. That was the ideology. That was the philosophy. That was the branding. And there were a lot of true believers. And the idea that a short time later, they would be in the position where they're forced to remove large numbers of people from their platform because of objectionable content, either because it's hateful or untrue in the eyes of whoever has the ability to wield that power, is something they never envisioned, in part because it violates their ideology, but also it it undermines their self-interest. If you create a social media platform, you want to keep as many people on the platform as possible. You don't want to be removing people and insinuating yourself into the middle of vehement debates. You you want to be AT&T. No one expects AT&T to cut off Alex Jones's phone service because he plans right-wing protests because the idea that AT&T has convinced everybody of is we're a content-neutral platform. That was what these social media companies wanted to be. They turned out not to be that with increasing intensity and frequency. They're censoring, and the question is why? And there's a lot of reasons, including the use of corporate media to shame them, depicting social media executives as having blood on their hands or being responsible for the destruction of democracy for not censoring more. They're they're obviously uh, subject to that kind of social state shame and stigma the way everyone else is, even though they're billionaires, they're still human and have that instinct as political and social animals not to be ostracized. But one really overlooked factor is the fact that Democrats even before they had control of both the House and Senate and the, the executive branch, going back to the 2016 election, when on their long list of people to blame for Hillary Clinton's loss, it included basically everyone except Hillary Clinton and her aides, was Facebook. And that's what kind of gave birth to this idea that as Democrats, we need to start using our political power to regulate these companies to force them to censor more. But they didn't really have the power because Trump controlled the executive branch. They didn't control the Senate. Once they won the two Georgia elections with Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff in the beginning of January, and it became clear they were going to control both houses of Congress and the White House, they really understood that they now had serious leverage over these companies. And they began making it explicit. They were they subpoenaed the executives of these social media companies to various Democratic run committees on five occasions in the last 18 months. And I watched most of them, those hearings, and they were explicit. They said, we are not angry with you because you're censoring too much. We're angry with you because you're not censoring enough. And if you don't start censoring more of this stuff off the Internet, this hate speech, this disinformation, we're you're going to face the consequences, meaning we're going to legislate against you. And we're going to regulate against you, threatening legal and regulatory reprisals if they don't censor more. And there was this really, you know, sometimes people are candid and admit what they're up to when they're not supposed to. So when Facebook banned Donald Trump and Twitter banned Donald Trump, it was right at the time that those two Georgia races were decided. 
And Jennifer Palmieri, who's one of the closest, longest time aides to the Clinton family, went on Twitter and said, I can't help but notice that right when the Democrats were gonna, are going to take over all of the regulatory agencies that oversee Silicon Valley and the committees that control them, they suddenly found a way to get rid of Trump after all, which is exactly <laughs> the dynamic. You know, she was saying it in a celebratory way and it went super viral. You right. know, like 20,000 tweets, 80,000 likes, because liberals were thrilled at this power that they had, which is intoxicating. So the argument that people make is, look, this isn't a First Amendment issue. These are private companies making decisions about the ideas with which they do and don't want to be associated. Even if that were true, there could still be legal issues because the position of the Democratic Party, joined by many Republicans now, is that these aren't just like any other companies. They're classic monopolies in violation of antitrust laws, which means the government has not just the ability, but the duty to regulate them and prevent them from doing things harmful to society, like censoring. But the reality is that there are those string of cases that you mentioned, and they're not really ambiguous. They're actually quite clear. What they're designed to do is prevent exactly this, which is where the government knows it can't, pass a law forcing Facebook to remove post or, you know, require jail the executives of Spotify if they don't take Joe Rogan off. But what they can do is they can start threatening and coercing and intimidating these companies by saying, you know, the power that we have. And if you don't start censoring this material that we deem dangerous, we will act against you. And the courts have been very clear that when political officials use coercion and the power of state action or to threaten state action in order to indirectly censor, to get private actors to censor for them in a way that they can't do directly, that does become a violation of the First Amendment. I think we're clearly nearing that point if we haven't already crossed it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we, we we might have even crossed it a long time ago. I mean, going back to the very beginning of the the Trump presidency, I mean, you know, we both remember those scenes where they were dragging all the uh, Silicon Valley executives to the hill and um, they were all being questioned about what their plans were to prevent the, the foment of discord. But the, the, the really amazing thing to me was the uh, uh, Mark Warner, the senator, um, uh, had a, prepared a, a white paper uh for uh, possible future regulation of Silicon Valley that included things like essentially blowing up the data surveillance model of, uh, of, of like, the, the, like, I'm, I'm gonna, just going to read briefly from this, uh, this proposal. Legislation could require companies to more granularly and continuously alert consumers to the ways in which their data was being used, counterparties it was being shared with, and perhaps most importantly, what each user's data was worth to the platform. Uh, so, in other words, they were—they wrote this whole um, sort of white paper that said, "Here's here's a string of things, laws that we can pass that will make your life very difficult, including all sorts of stuff about disclosure and making it difficult for you to use the data of your users." Um, so you can either do that. Or you can, you know, get in line and and help us prevent the the foment of discord. How is that not government coercion? 
Right? I mean, it seems to me, I, I, and it's only well, more explicit and, now. And, well, and, and like, you know, and like I said, at the time, the Democrats controlled the House, but not the Senate or the White House. In late 2020, the assumption was Biden was going to win. That was all the polls were showing that. Everybody was predicting that. And uh, there were three incidents that happened right before the election and right after the election along these lines that were for me, incredibly alarming, but didn't get anywhere near the attention they deserved, in part because they were overshadowed first by the election itself and then by the January 6th riot. So right before the election, when the New York Post broke its story about what Joe Biden, not Hunter Biden, but Joe Biden was doing in Ukraine and China, trading on his influence in those countries for potential business deals that came from the laptop of Hunter Biden, the CIA invented this lie that those documents were Russian disinformation. And that caused Facebook and Twitter to censor the story. Face Twitter brute censored it. You were prevented from posting a link to those stories. If you tried, it would say this is an invalid link. They locked the New York Post out of their account for two weeks leading up to the election. And that was clearly a result of the Democrats laying the, found, the, the, the groundwork for two or three years saying, we are not going to let a repeat of 2016 happen where you, the social media companies, allow the spread of information that come from comes from foreign interference. So they lied. The CIA did ex-intelligence officials about this material to make it seem like it fit into that narrative that this came from Russia and that it was disinformation, meaning the documents were fake. We now know Russia had nothing to do with it. The documents were completely genuine. But Twitter and Facebook censored the story right before the election, a remarkable act of intervention in the election that clearly was a byproduct of that coercion you were just describing. And then right after the election, beyond censoring, kicking off the platform, the sitting elected president of the United States, which even world leaders that hate Trump, like Angela Merkel and Emmanuel Macron and the Mexican president, Lopez Obrador, said was an extremely alarming thing to watch. Even even, Bur- even Bernie was freaked out, remember? Yeah, I mean, even Bernie was disturbed because it basically was saying we, these social media companies, are more powerful even than people who are elected to the highest office in democracies. That's what they were all freaked out about was this is a real threat to democracy. They clearly did that for the reason Jennifer Palmieri said, which is they knew Democrats were about to take over in Washington and they wanted to placate what happened. But what also happened that was right at that time, because of Twitter removing Trump, Parler became the number one most downloaded app in the country, the most popular app, more than Instagram, more than TikTok, more than Facebook, every other app. And AOC went on to Twitter to her 13 million followers and said, hey, Apple and Google, why are you allowing this right wing app that I dislike to be downloaded from your stores? And then immediately Apple banned Parler. She went back to Twitter that same day and said, now what are you going to do about this, Google? Google then announced they were going to, that they banned Parler. And then Democrats started pressuring Amazon to kick Parler off their web services hosting uh, service. And Amazon did. So these three Silicon Valley monopolies united to destroy the most popular app in the country at the behest of influential Democratic politicians like AOC. So this is not a hypothetical danger. This is not a potential problem that might happen if Democrats continue to pressure these companies. 
we already have very serious examples of Silicon Valley censoring the internet in response to democratic threats, either overt or implicit. And that's what makes Jen Psaki's comment to the White House this week, where she said, we're happy with what Spotify has done. They're in the going in the right direction. So a little head pat, but we expect more to be done. You know, if, if it hadn't been for this history, you might say, okay, the White House kind of has the right to say, we don't think Joe Rogan should be allowed to spread harmful disinformation without more being done. But in the context of what Democrats are clearly doing, that's what makes it so menacing. Yeah. And just to be clear, you know, obviously Donald Trump did say things in when he was president. I remember he sort of speculated on Twitter about maybe it's time to look at the license of NBC Um when he was talking about MSNBC, but the the thing was, it, it never happened, right? Like there was never this response where, uh, you know, you had the company suddenly getting in line and and uh, and censoring on mass, uh, you know, huge numbers of sites uh, at the behest of the Trump administration. Now it, it it's not it pro it, that's not because. Trump had any moral objection to it, I don't think, but uh, it just didn't happen. What's what's no, it, here? It's, it's because, look, what Trump said is similar if you look at it unto itself, but no one took that seriously. Right. Because Trump was an incredibly weak president with the attention span of a nad. So, you know, no one can say that MSNBC or CNN were intimidated by Trump. They basically went on the air every day and compared him to Hitler. So I don't, I think there's a big difference between that kind of empty talk and the Democrats, who are much more serious, they do have bills pending that can break up or regulate these industries. They do have Justice Department actions against these companies for antitrust violations and other things that can be very threatening. These kind of threats coming from the Democrats in control of all the branches of, of the government are way more menacing and serious than Donald Trump, you know, spouting off on Twitter. Right, they they actually know what they're doing is 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 the difference, uh, and it, it feels to me I don't know if if you agree with this that they would obviously they have the power to go in and bust up these companies and and force them to abandon their surveillance capitalism model of you know they could do all kinds of things to make life very difficult for these firms, but they would rather not. They'd rather leave things it seems in place. Uh, but just use the the reach that they have, um, you know, for for their own political ends. It, lo- it looks like that's the end game that they're pursuing now. Or, or do you see it differently? No, I think that's exactly right. I mean, first of all, remember, Silicon Valley loves the Democratic Party. The money that came from Silicon Valley and was put into the political system over the last four years overwhelmingly went to Democrats, especially to the Biden campaign. The, you know, Google and and Apple were extremely close to the Obama administration. Hillary Clinton loved Silicon Valley, thought they were going to be an important tool for the State Department. They cooperated with the NSA. So the issue, I think, is, you know, precisely what you said, which is like the thing is, I am somebody who thinks that these companies are monopolies and are violating the antitrust laws. I think the power that Google in particular has and the integration, vertical and horizontal, is exactly what the antitrust laws are designed to prevent. 
it's extremely difficult to be a competitor to these companies. There's no free market competition. That's what monopoly power does. That's how they destroyed Parler. They proved that. You know, the argument was always was, look, if you don't like how social media companies are 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 are, are censoring, go start your own company and and have more free speech there and see if you thrive. And Parler said, okay, that's what we'll do. And they went and did it. They were incredibly successful. And these companies used their monopoly power over downloading stores and web hosting services to destroy their competitor. That's what Google's trying to do now to Rumble because they're competing with YouTube. You don't find Rumble videos, for example, in Google search terms. So I I am somebody who is sympathetic to the cause of either breaking these companies up or regulating them as, as public utilities because I do think they're smashing competition. The problem is the Democrats, many Democrats, some are serious about the antitrust laws, like Amy Klobuchar actually is, and Lena Khan, the head of the FTC, is. But a lot of these Democrats are threatening to do this to Silicon Valley only as leverage to make them censor more. And as long as they censor more, the Democrats not only are satisfied, but want to preserve this extraordinary power because that means they've basically commandeered it. They've co-opted it. Right. There's a really great article by Curtis Yarvin on Substack, who has the Gray Matters uh, Substack, it's called, mm-hmm. that's entitled Mark Zuckerberg Has No Power. And even though the headline is a little bit hyperbolic, the argument is, you know, if the person who goes and actually removes the post from Facebook, who hits the delete button or the ban button, even though they're the ones hitting the delete button or the ban button, they don't really have any power. They're just moderators. They're they're censoring in accordance with what they're told to do by someone higher up. And they don't really have any power, even though technically it's in their hands. And he's making the argument that we're basically at the point where even though Google executives and Mark Zuckerberg nominally have all this power because they control these platforms with million, with billions of people using them, at this point, they're basically taking orders from the Democratic Party and from the corporate media about how to use that power. And so the power has kind of been wedded out of their hands and transferred to the government. And so I think you're right. The Democrats' ideal scenario, not the ones who are serious about antitrust violations, but the ones who are only angry at Silicon Valley because, as Ed Markey said, they're not censoring enough. Their real endgame is to preserve Facebook and Google as hegemonic powers on the Internet, but but command them, commandeer that power so they can use it for themselves. Right. They want they want sort of bad, unwieldy, um, uh, over empowered monopolies, uh, but they want to leave them in place and, and they want them uh, sort of under their heel, basically, I think is what what's happening. Now, the other component of this is the is the attitude of the the media uh, to this issue, which has been, it's been amazing to me. I mean, there's so many issues about which this is true, ranging from the Assange thing to this, where you could say, you know, 95% of the journalists 20 years ago would have thought differently. But how much of the hostility that you're seeing now, that we're seeing now towards people like Joe Rogan, for instance, how much of that do you think has to do with the collapsing ratings of you know the sort of cable news model uh, and the desire to kind of stamp out some kind of profitable space where people can go to? Um, whereas before, you know, if you, if you weren't in line with one of these companies, your choices were 
basically Fox or nothing. Um, it, it's, it's, it seems like a lot of this is about editorial control too. Oh yeah. I think there's a lot going on. I mean, it, you know, I think the observation that we need to emphasize is that the head of the censorship sphere is corporate media outlets and especially these employees of, of media corporations, which is, if you stop and think about it, kind of surreal. I remember during the Stone and reporting, a lot of journalists were supportive of what we were doing, but a lot weren't. And a lot thought not just Edward Snowden should be in prison, but that maybe we, the reporters, also should be. And I remember constantly talking about the club called Journalists Against Journalism or Journalists Against Transparency. Oh, it yeah. was who, bizarre. Who was that? Um, somebody on TV was, was talking about how you weren't really a journalist. Who was who was that? I can't remember. Well, it was that. like when I went out to meet the press, David Gregory essentially right. said, why shouldn't yeah. you, Mr. Greenwald, be in a prison cell alongside Mr. Snowden? You're not really, some say you're not really a journalist. And Andrew Ross, Ross Sorkin, the next day on CNBC, said the same thing. That was a common sentiment. It was obviously more common towards Snowden, where journalists were angry at Snowden. It's like, why would you go into journalism and then be angry at somebody who has enabled enormous amounts of transparency about the most secretive agency within the world's most powerful government? If you don't want transparency brought to these agencies, in what sense are you even a journalist? Why did you go into journalism? If you want to protect secrecy, you know, it's like it's like a cardiologist becoming a spokesman for a cigarette company and urging people to smoke more. It's, it's like, it's just surreal. It doesn't go together. And like you said, we see the same thing with how the, the people who hate Julian Assange the most are also journalists. And, and it's bizarre for that reason. I think part of what goes on there is the same thing that's going on with Rogan, which is just professional jealousy. If you are somebody who works at these digital media outlets, the Huffington Post, BuzzFeed, Gizmodo, Vice, Vox that are all falling apart and nobody reads and going bankrupt and layoffs. And you went, did all the right things. You went to journalism school and you affirm all the things you're supposed to affirm that the experts say that you're supposed to. And you look at this like reality show host who likes hunting and fighting. And is the kind of person you've always your whole life been trained to think has no entitlement to anything. And you see him with millions and millions and millions of viewers and a hundred million dollar contract while nobody gives a shit what you say and no one trusts you, there's, of course, a big part of that that's just per- personal resentment, like petty professional jealousy. Same way they look at Julian Assange and think, why should this bizarre, weirdo Australian hacker get to break more stories of greater significance than I could break in my entire life if I lived to be a thousand years old? So part of it is that. Part of it is for sure the economic and ratings issue. If you just eliminate popular independent voices, you'll make people captive. You're required now to watch CNN and MSNBC because they've silenced everybody else. I think clearly there's a financial motive on the part of the corporations. But also, I think we shouldn't overlook the fact that a lot of these people who work inside these media companies are now true believers I think the Trump era made them genuinely convinced that Trump is this kind of unprecedented, world historic, once in a generation evil that we've never seen before, like on the level of Hitler or, you know, these totalitarian figures who are is an existential threat to American democracy and that his movement is filled with fascists and white nationalists who want to destroy American democracy And if you really believe that, as I think many of them do, 
that kind of fear will breed authoritarianism. It's almost inevitable. It's almost like natural and inevitable that if you put yourself into that level of, of pitched hysteria about the threats that surround you, you're going to turn to, you're going to want your political enemies in prison. You're definitely going to want them silenced. And I think there's all these different things that have been used to gin up fear. First, there was Russia. Now there's the insurrection to call this an insurrection, you know, meaning like there's an insurrectionary movement in the United States that wants to overthrow the U.S. government. And then on top of that, you put COVID. All three of these episodes have generated enormous amounts of fear and have all been driven by liberal media employees to generate this belief that we can't allow too much freedom because we live in too dangerous of a time to permit that. And I think there's a lot of it that is actually coming from genuine conviction, which on some level is even scarier than the more cynical explanations. Yeah, isn't that weird, though? Because I feel like that genuine conviction, the the most concentrated uh, levels of it are in our business. I mean, am I am I wrong about that? <laughs> or, I mean, it may, maybe in academia, I don't know. But it, but that but that uh, sense of um, absolute certainty that we need greater controls on speech, um, which used to be the exact opposite of how people in journalism thought. Uh, I don't think it's. I don't think we see it anywhere at levels higher than in in the media is is that right or or no i think you're absolutely you know it's it, it, I, I the reason why you know it was always so amazing to me like the reason why I, I reacted in in a very aggressive way and found the russiagate script so repellent is because i was steeped in the journalistic mindset that came out of the cold war and mccarthyism as a civil libertarian which i think all journalists should be that was one of the greatest civil libertarian assaults of the 20th century, up there with the internment of Japanese Americans and and the and, and the Espionage Act prosecutions of, of World War One, putting socialist opponents of, of World War One in, into prison, was the whole decade of McCarthyian hysteria, accusing everybody of being a Russian agent, of being a you know clandestine um, loyalist to the Kremlin, and to watch that script be revitalized. You know, just journalistically, I repelled from it. But then more recently, the formative experience I thought for most journalists was the Iraq war where we were, I thought, you know, had had learned the lesson that when the intelligence community, when the U.S. security state starts making claims about grave threats that require you to accept greater secrecy on their part and greater surveillance powers on their part and just in general more acquiescence to their authority, we're supposed to be very skeptical about these claims of of the dangers we face because their institutional incentive is to exaggerate and inflate those threats. This, to me, was supposed to be embedded in journalism, and yet, because of Trump again, they became very hysterical about Russia. They really believed that the Kremlin had infiltrated American institutions of power and had taken over the United States through clandestine blackmail, like a completely fucking deranged conspiracy theory (laughs) that became the mainstream consensus for the most part. And, you know, from there, it wasn't that big of a leap into further hysteria with things like January 6th and, and, uh, and COVID. And 
you know, I know, I think you know this map, but like in 2011, Chris Hayes wrote this book called The Twilight of the Elites. This was right before he got his primetime MSNBC show. And one of the main themes of the book was what he called cognitive capture. And the idea was that elite institutions are so corrupted, but also so skillful at co-opting anybody who enters them that if you become immersed in these elite institutions, no matter how well-intentioned you are, no matter how smart you are, no matter how much in advance you think you're going to resist them, eventually it will co-opt your brain because you will just start seeing the world through their prism. Every day you go into work and you talk to people who think that way. The people who are your sources at the CIA, the Pentagon, are all telling you the same thing. You get rewarded for affirming those that, that consensus. You get punished for dissenting from it and so eventually it like converts them all and i think that has what has happened more than anything in these journalistic corporations is they go to work every day and are obsessed constantly on these same debates and so they get more converted than almost anybody because their immersion is total yeah that makes it makes a lot of sense it's almost like a concentrated version of the the campaign trail right where you're you're literally in an airplane with, you know, only other journalists and politicians and donors, and they're the only people you ever talk to, uh, and you can't get out because the, the Secret Service is, is guarding this bubble. Uh, so the longer you stay in the plane or on the bus, I mean, whatever the metaphor is, the more the more immersed you get and and more you adopt each other's values. And I, I think you're right. I think that's that's kind of what's happened uh in the last in the last five years um anyway do you want to open this up to a couple of people what do you think do you, do you have you have a few minutes to uh take a couple of questions yeah i mean i don't really trust your fan base but uh, <laughs> in general i've had good experiences when when i've done it so why don't we try it all right let's let's give it a shot okay uh let's see i think alan you're up Armand. No? Okay. Hello? So far, I'm not impressed with your hosting yeah, skills. Yeah, my, my hosting skills are wanting. Okay, Ar- is, is Armand? Armand. You have to tell him to unmute himself. Yeah, I, dude, you got to unmute yourself. Oh, sorry about that. You guys yep. can hear me? Yep, there we go. Oh, you guys are the best. This is awesome. It's so cool. Um, I was just wondering, uh, Glenn, if you could comment on the absurdity of liberals who are shaming Tucker Carlson, who's been pressuring the Republican Party to stop pushing for war in Ukraine while spending no time being outraged, outraged by the neocons on MSNBC. Oh, do we lose him? I think you muted yourself, um, but I think I got the gist of it. Um. There was a really interesting article today in Politico by Jack Schaefer, who's a really good media critic and columnist and has been for a long time, discussing the fact that Nielsen ratings show that Tucker Carlson is not just, as everybody knows, the most watched cable host uh, on television, but he's even the most watched cable host among Democrats ages 24 to 24. Yeah, mm-hmm. that which is called like the demographic. It's the most coveted um, 
demographic because it's young people who have purchasing power. And I should add that I'm still within that demographic. I don't believe Matt is, but I am. <laughs> no, I am. Um, what are you talking about? Okay. Uh, Matt, Matt, Matt has a few more months still to, to go. Um, so huge numbers of Democrats are watching Tucker Carlson's show more so than anybody else. Like, well, why would that be? And, you know, it isn't just that, for example, now that there's this, you know, beating of the war drums in Washington for the U.S. to involve itself in this potential incredibly dangerous war between Russia and Ukraine, that the U.S. in some way is playing some role in, in, in contributing to through the expansion of NATO or the threatened expansion of NATO up to the most sensitive parts of the Russian border. There's basically one person on television you know, devoted to arguing that the U.S. should stay out of that. It has no interest in involving itself in that conflict and in that tea that's Tucker Carlson. I don't think there's a single left liberal elected official on the national level, not Bernie, not AOC, not Ilhan Omar, none of them who are that clear and crisp in their opposition. No AOC kind of threw a couple of muddled cliches out about how there's no military solution. But in terms of just really articulating a cogent case that the U.S. should not involve itself in this conflict. He's pretty much it. But the same thing happened a few months ago when there were these quote-unquote protests in Cuba and there was bipartisan demand from both parties for the U.S. to involve itself on the side of the protesters, meaning help the protesters overthrow the Cuban government. And the only space where that, that existed to go and say the U.S. had no role to play in Cuba was, was that show. I went on Tucker Carlson and said, I don't understand why Republicans wouldn't be up in arms about this. The whole foreign policy of Trump was America first. So how does that, you know, jive with having the U.S. spend its resources to change the government of Cuba? And so I think for me, one of the overlooked parts of the last several years is the Trump era did usher in this ideological scrambling where there's more support on the left for online censorship by big tech companies in the state than there is on the right. There's more reverence and trust in the CIA and the FBI among Democrats than Republicans. And I think there's a lot of anti-war sentiment on the right that's often lacking on the left. And, and that show is oftentimes the kind of leading a, a venue for, for airing those views. Glenn, did you laugh out loud when you saw those numbers? I mean, it just made me so happy. There was a paragraph in there talking about how I was going to get to now rub that in the face of all of my leftist critics. So I could always say, well, what do you mean? If you want to talk to Democrats as well and independents, you have to go to Tucker's show as well. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, then there's another just aspect of this, uh, just to, be, to, to shift gears a little bit, that drives me completely crazy, which is that in, in addition to the sort of overt condescension on all the, on CNN and MSNBC and all the would-be, you know, leftist channels, um, and the hostility toward people like Joe Rogan, who, there's, there's so, it's such, there's such an obvious class element to the disdain, um, you know, toward that show that you see uh, both in the New York Times and in the Post and uh, on those channels, but they don't have a single. There isn't a single really sort of working class ordinary voice, and I'm not saying Tucker Carlson is that. What what I am saying is they there is no effort at all on those channels or anywhere in the sort of prestige media 
to try to communicate with ordinary people on on issues like this, on issues like war. Instead, it's just an endless parade of experts uh, and ex, uh, uh, you know, intelligence officials, and the the arrogance to think that that's not going to eventually take its toll in ratings um, is incredible, you know. And 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 now, you know, for for, for you. Know, in addition to everything else, to, to not even have any place where anybody can speak um, against the possibility of war uh, in the so-called left-leaning media is—it's just mind-boggling. Again, compared to where we were just ten or fifteen years ago, um, when when you know ex- exactly the opposite was true. Uh, so that that's amazing to me. I don't know about you, but yeah, I mean, you know, there's a there's a reason why there's a reason why the ratings for MSNBC and CNN have collapsed, while Fox thrives and Joe Rogan thrives even more. You would think people on the losing end of that formula would ask themselves why that is, but they rarely, if ever, do. And if they're forced to, they'll just kind of come up with a self glorifying explanation. It's because we cover the news in a sophisticated, nuanced way, and so much of the country is racist and stupid and only wants to be fed the racism and stupidity that Tucker Carlson and Joe Rogan feed them. Similar to the incapacity that Democrats and their media allies had to ask why Donald Trump won, the only explanation they could give is it's a racist country, and people who voted for Donald Trump did so because they were racist, even though millions of them had twice voted for President Obama. It still was the only explanation that they could find that didn't require any self-analysis or self-critique. So it is a bizarre thing to watch that everybody knows that Joe Rogan has created in this young audience and this ideologically diverse audience a kind of trust and confidence and faith that these media outlets have completely lost. And there's very little effort to ask why because to ask why would require them to acknowledge their own deficiencies. Yeah, and just to really quickly add to that, I mean, not that long ago, it was basically a requirement in any major newspaper in this country that you would have to have at least one columnist who wrote in the language of an ordinary person, right? Whether it was a Jimmy Breslin or Herb Cain or Mike Royko or whatever it was, and they're all gone. Like they've been, all, they've all been replaced by. Jennifer Rubens and Max Boots and, um, you know... David I mean, Frums and Nicole yeah, Wallace's. Yeah. Nicole, yeah, Nicole Wallace was their idea of, like, how we're, how we're going to reach out to the ordinary person. Like, it just tells you that the, the level of delusion, um, you know, it, I, I think that's part of it, right? It's, it's, not, just, it's not just that they don't want to talk uh, to the rest of America. I, they just, they, they don't know how. Like, 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 like when they when they sincerely try, Nicole Wallace is there is what they come up with. Um, all right, I'm gonna we'll, we'll go to a couple more. Uh, let's see if Nima. Uh, yeah. Hi, you can you guys hear me? Yep. Okay, great. Well, thank you, Matt. Uh, thank you, Glenn. Um, thank you. you know, my name is Nima. I'm a great admirer of both of you. I've listened to you guys for years. Um, uh, it's an honor to speak with both of you guys. Um, you know, I've. Uh, I found myself, you know, generally on the left when it, and fairly liberal on a lot of issues. You know, I, for instance, I support 
you know, Medicare for all, ending wars, ending all wars, canceling student debt, and obviously being anti-censorship like you guys are. Um, I'm not a supporter of Joe Biden or Donald Trump. Um, you know, on on the issue of censorship, you know, January 6th commission, vaccine mandates, it seems like a lot of the censorship, certainly not all of it, but a lot of it is aimed at, quote unquote, Trump supporters or the populist right or someone like neutral, like Joe Rogan, who's certainly not right wing uh, in in my mind. I think he's more he's definitely more left wing. I don't even think he's political, but if you have to label him, uh, you know, he's definitely not. He endorsed Bernie Sanders. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. He's in the endorsed Bernie Sanders. Um, um, so he's definitely not. He's definitely not. I think that the main problem with him is he doesn't agree with the main Democratic Party hierarchy. Um, so that's the main problem they have with him and along with all the other things you guys have mentioned today and obviously before today. Um, and so what do you guys think? It seems like like with this, you know, they're trying to get Trump in New York or in Georgia on what he did in the Trump organization. It seems like they're doing all they can to stop him from running because they, at least the Democrats, in my opinion, they perceive him as a threat. Um, is a lot of the censorship... To, it towards that end so that his supporters can't voice their opinion I and mean, obviously i'm not a right winger but certainly i see that a lot of it is is based on based on stopping that from happening again any thoughts on that um and uh, you know and a lot they want to change you know the democrats want to change all the rules for voting i mean if the election was so great in 2020 why do we need to do that so you know there's a lot of questions that are you know that I have. I don't really understand what the Democrats are doing. It seems like, as you guys said, a lot. I'm alienated from the Democratic Party. I used to be a solid Democrat. Now I'm not. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah. And I've watched Tucker Carlson a lot more now than I did before, as you guys mentioned. So I'm one of those people. Yeah, Nima. Nima, thanks for the question. I, I I'll just quickly say I, I think to me a lot of the labeling of people like Rogan or um, you know people who oppose mandates there's always an effort primarily to call all of uh, these people right wing because that's the most effective way to demonize it in, mon- in modern media I, I think it, the Trump issue is kind of a red herring I think it's more of an overall control issue where it's just we see the same phenomenon all over the world that the elites losing their grip on power as they're distrusted more and more and this is the only thing way they know how to respond is is by trying to flex more muscle i know glenn what do you think about that yeah well first of all um nima i think it's uh, i'm really glad that that we got to you because i think there's this perception that both matt and i have this ideologically homogenized audience um and a lot of people assume that it's filled with people on the right and it's just not true um, right. It's never been true for me, and I don't think it's been true for Matt. Um, I think one of the things of which I've always been proud yeah. is, is, yeah, like I have, a, I've always had a very ideologically hum, uh, uh, diverse audience. I think filled it's with like both are very honest. You don't, you don't, you're not, you don't have agendas on what you on on it. You yeah, take it I issue by I, issue. I, 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 yeah, right. And I think that's what explains Joe Rogan's popularity as well is that he's not captive to any faction or dogma and so like what he says is always going to be a byproduct of his best effort to figure things out truthfully and it doesn't mean he's always going to be right no one's always right 
but people trust that at least what he's saying is honest. He's not aggrandizing anybody. He's not stuck to like a particular ideology or trapped within a, a kind of strain of partisan faction that he is afraid of displeasing. And I think most people are like that. I don't think most people identify with like Chuck Schumer versus Mitch McConnell or like <laughs> right. Nancy Pelosi versus Paul Ryan. Like they don't find identity in any of that. And they, that's why there's so many people identifying as politically homeless. And I think that's always been a huge part of my readership and, and is even more so now. And then the other thing you know about the censorship, I mean, I, you know, I, the reason censorship happens all the time, obviously the founders knew it was a gigantic danger, which is why they prohibited it in the First Amendment, is for always the same reason. It is an extremely effective means of consolidating power if you get to control what people hear and what they don't hear. You can mm-hmm. deceive and manipulate them and control their actions with great ease. And I think the Democratic Party knows it has a failed ideology of neoliberalism. It's been rejected all over the Democratic world. It's been rejected in the United States. That's what led to the election of Donald Trump and almost his re-election. Like he had everything lined against him that you could possibly want an incumbent to have. An economic crisis, a pandemic, the entire establishment against him. And he still came very close to winning. Mm-hmm. So I think the Democrats fear validly And I think media outlets also fear validly that power is slipping out of their hands. And when ruling class factions know that they're losing power, they do anything to cling to it. And censorship is always the most effective way of doing that, because that way you can control what people can say and think and hear. Are you guys optimistic at all? Do you think it's just going to keep getting worse in the the short term? Is it ever going to get better? I think it is. I mean, for me, the emergence of this kind of like independent new media ecosystem that you can call Roganism if you want as shorthand. The fact that we're here, the fact that there's Substack, that there's Rumble, that there's podcasts, and that these are incredibly popular venues for dissent and for independent thought and companies devoted to guaranteeing the ability to do that, either out of ideology or they see the, the market opportunity. I think, you know, that is incredibly encouraging. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm more of two minds about that because on the one hand, if you go back in American history, you'll see that there's this incredible tradition of innovation, um, resistance, both of the political variety, but also, you know, within journalism, there's always been this kind of defiant streak. We, we have a great history of journalism in this country. We, you know, we produce some some of the best who've ever done it. Um, and there's always going to be that, you know, innovative strain that's going to figure out a way to reach people and communicate. What I worry about, though, is that the technological picture now will, will make it possible for, um, you know, for the natural human, uh, natural tendency of sort of human ingenuity and spirit to 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 win out you can beat them uh in the, with this technological situation i mean as as we've seen as you see in china um i i i'm a little bit i'm a little bit more pessimistic than i was even five years ago now because i i just think that that at some point if someone takes the step to actually lock all this this uh, exciting space that Glenn is talking about, if they want to lock it down, 
they can. I don't know, Glenn. What do you think about that? Do you think, do you think that's possible or not? It's definitely possible. You know, it reminds me of the encryption wars where the privacy activists believed the key to stopping government surveillance and preserving a free internet was encryption. And then government agencies and other non-state actors were working simultaneously to learn how to break encryption. There, it was kind of an arms race to see, you know, who could kind of grasp control. I think something similar is happening here. I mean, every outlet, every new company or every existing media company I know that's devoted to protecting the ability to dissent from liberal orthodoxies has to think deeply about how just technologically do you prevent yourself from becoming parlorized, from having Amazon and Google and Apple just decide to zap you out of existence one day. So there's a lot of technological solutions being created. A lot of people think crypto and blockchain are the solution, but that's clearly still a ways away. But, you know, I think that these companies have to be careful not to crack down in such a way that it becomes too blatant what they're doing. And you can really generate a lot of backlash like that. Americans are instilled with this ethos of free speech. And I do think they're starting to overplay their hands. Like, you know, three years ago, there'd be like one of these episodes every three months. They would boot Alex Jones off. They would kick Miley Yiannopoulos off. Now it's weekly. Before the thing with Rogan, it barely got noticed that Dan Bongino, one of the most popular conservative oh, in the country, right. was kicked off YouTube by Google for the crime of saying that he doesn't think cloth masks work, which is, you know, a view that is shared by a lot of credentialed experts. So this is like now an orgy of censorship. And I think a lot of people are starting to find it very menacing. And in that backlash gives me hope. And I think... You know, part of my job and part of Matt's job is to nurture and cultivate that backlash by making people aware of just how extreme it is and simultaneously finding solutions and lending our name and lending our support to those platforms actually devoted to preserving free inquiry. Well, I just want to say that that I really admire both of you a lot. And I think, you know, we need more people, more journalists like you, too, because there's not enough. (laughs) <laughs> at least with the courage that you two have. And uh, I just want to say, keep doing what you're both doing. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I follow you guys more, more, a lot more than I did just even just a year ago, because uh, it's, it's the, I think the, the mainstream media has become, the landscape has become worse. And I, I trust a lot less what I read in the New York times and except, and here in the news than I did uh, even in just a year ago or two years ago. So we need voices like you two. And I really appreciate your t- time. Thanks very much, Nima. I really really appreciate it. Yeah, Uh, Glenn. I know you got to go, right? Or or yeah, I I do have to go. Just I'm going to take the opportunity to shill for my own show, which I absolutely co-host with uh, Shill Away, Canadian journalist. Um, So we're going to spend our show, which starts in about a half an hour. So finish listening to Matt, and then you can come over uh, talking about the Canadian truckers movement and the media's reaction to it. Um, We're also going to have. Uh, That's amazing, too, by the way. Did you see that, the CBC thing, where they were talking about the the Russians instigated it? I mean, it's, it's it's but like I said, it belongs in the DSM. It's a mental illness at this point that can the <laughs> Russians lurk behind every Western problem. We're going to have Vijay Prashad on, too, so we're going to talk about China and Russia. Um, and I also have my own show, as you guys probably know, that uh, doesn't have a regular time. But, um, hey, Matt, thank you for inviting me to come and speak. I, I super enjoyed it. Um, no, thanks for coming on, Glenn. Really yeah, appreciate right. it. Thank Absolutely. you, everybody, for listening as well. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Thank you, Glenn. All right. Thank Take you, care, Glenn. Bye-bye. All right. That was... Uh...
That was Glenn Greenwald. So um, that was fun. I'm glad glad it came on. Uh, definitely check out um, you know, his podcast uh, and his Rumble his Rumble show. Um, he's been very active on uh, on multiple fronts. He's uh, he's taking advantage of all these new platforms, uh, and I think he's. Uh, he, he's gotten into a, uh, you know, he, he he's gotten into the spirit of this in a way that, um, uh, you know, as an example for for independent journalists. So uh, definitely check it out and um, let let's continue. So uh, I got a little bit more time. If uh, Alan, if you're if you're there, do you uh, do you do you have a question? No. Oh, there we go. Hey, yeah. Sorry, I couldn't hey, respond I... until I got bumped to that top collar spot, apparently. Oh, okay. Anyway, thanks, Matt. Appreciate this. Um, no, of course. Uh, well, I got to say the... Oh. Yeah, yeah. sorry. I, I didn't hit mute or at least I didn't mean to. Um, the num- Anyway, thanks for having me here. My, the number one thought kicking around my brain relating to the topics you've been talking about lately is just the sheer asymmetry um, of how the concept of missing context is applied. <laughs> if you, I mean, every single mainstream or hegemonic narrative uh, communication about, you know, COVID response, vaccines, everything like that is missing context. And the one, like the most blatant thing, once you see it, you can't unsee it. Always missing context, time. When they talk about and the related concept of age, by the way, when they talk about things like vaccine efficacy, okay, they never say for what time period. And they get away with it because we're not used to asking, well, for how long is this vaccine effective? Because most of them have been effective for a uh, uh, minimum of 10 years, if not your entire life, right? Um, age, similarly, you know, they're talking about, oh, you know, well, yes, these come with side effects, but it's always worth it because you know, the side effects of COVID are worse. Well, I'm sorry, you forgot to say for what age groups, because it matters. And and it, it's undeniable if you look at the initial results they've done on trials for uh, infants, where uh, they haven't been able to figure out how to even get short-term, um, you know, results. Anytime they say, oh, safe and effective, missing context, why? Because they haven't defined what safe means. Usually we think of safe as like harmless, uh, well, there's no medical intervention in history that's completely harmless. So where do you draw the line? Well, more likely to help than not. Well, by that definition, then Russian roulette is safe because <laughs> most likely you'll get one of the five empty chambers, right? Um, you know, even the word vaccine. Well, that missing context. Why? Because uh, historically vaccine means it gave you immunity. And we now know beyond a shadow of a doubt these don't. So, right. So... <laughs> I mean, you want to slap disinformation labels on things? Um, okay, let's start slapping disinformation labels on uh, the Supreme Court. What with uh, the mis and disinformation we've heard from justices on the court. Let's slap uh, dis and misinformation labels on C-SPAN because um, Congress people and senators lie uh, all the time. So right. we can't keep letting them get away with pretending that only alternative media lies when we know beyond a shadow of a doubt we're lied to 
and and context is omitted every day. And so any thoughts on that? Welcome. Yeah, no, thanks. That's a great question. And look, uh, it's the missing context thing is, is clearly a red herring and clearly a canard. Um, there's two things I will, uh, I want to talk about there. First is contextualization is just another way of drowning out uh, inconvenient fact uh, or, or changing the public's view of something that might be true. Just to take, just to take an example, a, a silly example, but one that I, to me was infuriating. Recently, there's that congressman from uh, from Arizona, Paul Gosar, who did that video clip about uh, AOC uh, and and Joe Biden. Does that, do you remember that one? Um, oh, you're gone. Okay. Well, anyway, he, he, uh, Paul Gosar made this kind of crazy, goofy anime clip. Um, he's a Republican congressman, and uh you can't find the clip like if you go do a search for it in in google you'll see like a, a long long list of stories about the clip and you'll see headline after headline Here, you know, i'm just going to read a couple uh paul gosar defends video showing him killing aoc unrepentant gosar retweets his aoc anime mur- murder video uh House votes to censure uh, Gosar over animated murder video. Um, And so, but when you actually look at it, look at the clip, it's just completely silly. It's, it's maybe a little offensive, but it's the idea that it's violent, which is in, in another one of these headlines is absurd. So, you know, Glenn was talking before about how Google has too much power. Google has become, essentially the media regulator that we never had in this country. The United States has never really had a formal media regulator. What we do now uh, have is a a search engine that's basically a monopoly that makes it so that the first hundred results you see when you go search for something um, have wrapped whatever the item you're searching for is in contextualization by the proper authorities, right? So their contextualization is just their way of surrounding you with a with messaging that they uh, that they think you know is appropriate. The other thing about this is that this whole idea of doing a fact check with missing context. Um, that's not a fact checker's job. Just just to go a little fourth wall um, here for a moment, and I and I know I've talked about this before, but fact checkers traditionally, their job is to do a really quick review of a story and look at the you know the facts in the story and see if there is incontrovertibly a problem that might lead to litigation. Um, the accusations of libel or just an embarrassing factual error that would lead to reputational harm for the company. So what they would, what fact checkers used to do traditionally is they would go through and say, 
All right. Was the sky really blue that day? Did this member of Congress really say this quote? Um, is this number 67% of America believes in the existence of angels, literal existence of angels? Is that true? Well, there's one poll by Gallup um, that says it's true. So that's good enough for us. Like that's what, that's what fact checkers did. They, they sat there with a piece of text and a magic marker and whenever they could find any citation that allowed them to say it uh they would sort of strike it through and that would that would allow the the text to go forward their job was not to to tell you to to make qualitative decisions about whether or not somebody's argument was correct um they could sometimes raise issues you know, are you interpreting these quotes correctly? Are you are you understanding what the what this data is saying correctly and communicating that correctly to the audience? But the idea that that that's fact checking is it's a completely new concept. It, that that's journalism. So this whole new apparatus of fact checking, which which was the subject of that piece involving Paul Thacker, where you have these armies of sites, and there's so many of them now, you know, whether it's um, the, the verification unit of NBC or Glenn Kessler's Fact Checker or PolitiFact um, or Snopes or, or God knows what else, 90% of what they do is say, well, yes, but, <laughs> you know, it's true, but, um, you know, factually, yes, but here's how you should think about that. And that's not our job. Traditionally, the job of the journalist is, well, we give you the information and you're the public and it's your job to sort out what to do with it. Like our, our job ends with figuring out whether it's true or not. And we, we treat you like adults and uh, in response, you know, we hope that you trust us and come back to us. And that's how it's supposed to work. And they've blown up that whole model with this, with this mania for contextualization, which is, which is really about being afraid to let the public see the raw truth because they're afraid they're going to draw the wrong conclusion from it. And just to bring it back to that Paul Gosar video, we don't want anybody, we don't want people actually looking at the video and saying, well, that's actually just kind of silly and a, maybe a lame attempt at humor. Um, no, we want them to think that was a violent, angry, um, you know, act of incitement that borders on criminal. Uh, and the only way you think that is if you wrap it in so much context that you never actually see the thing. And it's an Orwellian trick to me. So I'm sorry to go on about that, but I have strong feelings about that subject. So anyway, th thank you um, for that question. I'll take a few more. Uh, hang on a sec. See who else is out there. Uh, Sal, are you are you up? Sal, are you there? You got to unmute yourself if you are. My grandfather's name was Sal. Sal is not there. Okay. 
So I will move to 4 Revolution Chris, I think. No? I'm here. Hey, hey how, are you, how are you doing? Excellent. Uh, hey, a couple of things. So one thing, um, going back to kind of the trust stuff and the question of color a couple of times ago, asked right before Glenn signed off. Um, as to whether there's hope, I think you kind of alluded to it. As long as there's, you know, AWS, Amazon Web Services controls so much of, of internet traffic and hosting, as long as there's a monopoly still in tech, you know, anybody that's really a threat can and will be, will be, uh, I think, pushed off. You know, I think... I just, I'm not sure with the tech situation the way it is that there is a lot of hope for, for things getting a lot better. There are a lot of good voices out there, you and Glenn, and I personally like Jimmy, I know that, uh, Jimmy Dore, that mm-hmm. aroused a lot of different uh, sentiments and different people, but um, these independent voices are really important. But I, I just don't, as much as I want you guys to, through your journalism work, make changes I think, well, with this push for censorship on Rogan, it's, it seems a little hard. One part that I think goes into the censorship thing and that wasn't discussed, but was like the adpocalypse and the change in the algorithm on YouTube that's really marginalized uh, independent media, especially lefty independent media. Mm-hmm. Um, people like Kyle Kalinske, who I don't always find great, but has... In the the past been great. The Young Turks, who I've completely fallen out of love with, but at a point was a a media organization that did challenge the establishment. They just do the bidding now. But And then people like Jimmy and people of that, you know, Jimmy's been at 900, just under a million subscribers, does like, you know, 12 million views a week, uh, according to the analytics. And like, clearly, you know, I didn't get a... YouTube notification when he went live yesterday. There is a clear suppression of independent media do- being done through the algorithm on YouTube. And because these other platforms like Rumble and Rockfin are not quite as big and having trouble getting off the ground because YouTube is such a, a it's, it's the source for, for pushing video out to, to, uh, to uh, people, to viewers, it's hard to see how, you know, that's a part, that's a, a form of censorship. It's hard to see how things can change. Just ob- observing those two f- facts uh, with regards to YouTube and the algorithm. Um, hmm. Last thing that I'll say to you, and you can respond to those things um, is that I was listening to Brianna Joy Gray's podcast this morning and uh, Freddie DeBoer, DeBoer was on and um, excellent. You know, he's, I was not impressed with his sentiments. They were talking about the Rogan thing and he keeps saying uh, Rogan's pushing misinformation, but that's the amazing thing about this misinformation thing is that they don't elaborate. They don't like Malone. They've taken him off of YouTube and Twitter. I believe um, he's on Substack. I'm a subscriber of Substack, and and McCulloch has not been removed yet, but he's been. I think he's gotten strikes on YouTube. You know, 
people like DeBoer and most of the, the other guests that were on Brianna's podcast who are liberals and leftists subscribe to this just blindly that Joe Rogan's pushing misinformation. And the other point that I want to make, and I know I'm going on, but that DeBoer said was, and I shouldn't necessarily be attacking him when he's not here to defend himself, but it is what it is. Uh, the other thing he said was Joe Rogan's contributing to the uh-huh. situation in this country. Can you hear me? Yep. I lost you for Are a second. Yeah. Just that last part. Sorry. Um, so the other thing that DeBauer said, which I just don't agree with at all, is that Joe Rogan's uh, contributing to the, um, he, I think the way he said it was going to the grocery store and looking at the other people like they're your enemy. And I think it's actually like, like completely the opposite. I think the mainstream media establishments, like one of the guests uh, that was on that podcast as a part of New York Times and leaving to go to uh, Washington Post, Taylor Lorenz. And those are the mainstream media is what's pushed this. Look at every Trumper like a threat to you. And then on the other side, Fox News, OAN and um, and right. entities like that are doing the opposite on their end. And really, it's the mainstream media that's pushing this narrative of, of dividing people, scaring people, and making you look at your neighbor like they're a complete threat to you. And so I guess that's a lot of things to say. No, no, I, I, that, that's a great question, multi, multi-part. Uh, but, uh, yeah, let, let, let me just address a couple of things there that are I think are really interesting. Um you know, first, you're absolutely right about the last part. So the appeal of Rogan's show, uh, the whole, I mean, I would say the larger part of why his audience is so big is precisely because people do not get that vibe of divisiveness from his show or judgment, right? Um, When he has his guests on, sometimes he'll give them a hard time. Sometimes he'll push them in ways that are aggressive. But there's not this uh, overarching effort to put people in their place and make sure they're thinking the right way. Um, that is the the dominant method or school of interviewing now in commercial media. And just to go back a little bit in time and talk about the history of this, there was there was a time in, in the press when we were sort of trained. Um, in how to interview people. And there were, there were different methods. Uh, but one of the ones that was favored, you, you know, was the one that was used by people like Charlie Rose, which is this idea of, you know, we'll sit a person down. doesn't matter what their points of view are. Um, but let's, let's have a conversation. Let's not be too judgmental. Let's draw the person out. And the purpose of the interview is to let that person um, uh, you know, draw out that person's views, uh, find out what makes them tick, what makes them interesting, what's the what's the rationale behind their thinking, how did they become famous, and why? Uh, and you know, our job is to kind of stay out of it. So we're having a conversation. We want to make them feel comfortable. Um, we're not lending support or, or or you know rejecting them. We're just. We're just drawing them out. And that's really what Rogan does. Rogan does this sort of classic 
kind of 60 minutes PBS style interviews. They're just longer and a little bit more chill. Um, and people like that. They, they like this idea of, well, I get to meet, meet this or that character and I get to decide whether I like that person or not. And that's, that's why that show is, is popular. Um, on the techn- technological front, you know, again, I, I kind of agree with you. I'm, I'm worried because there are, there are switches you can flip now that make it possible to just disappear inconvenient voices um, in ways that were just never possible before. Uh, I worry about that, you know, all the time. I mean, I, I, my livelihood depends on Substack, which is designed in almost like a military way to resist uh, intrusion uh, by you know, would-be censors. But I still, I'm still scared of it. But ultimately, what this is going to come down to, and I think that's what's interesting about that trucker protest that Glenn's going to be talking about later today, is you have this enormous technological and financial capability of the super wealthy in um, in the West now, but they they don't know how to run anything. They don't know. (laughs) They are not the people who are delivering the food. They're not the people who are running, who are piloting the ships. They don't fly the airplanes. They can't fix the cars. Um, They know how to tend to the machinery of the internet and, and the financial services industry, but they can't do anything else. So if, if there is a protest like we're seeing in Canada, um, they have to listen. I mean, I, I, Ultimately, I think that's where the rubber meets the road. Are, are, are people going to protest if things get too too hairy? And, you know, we're seeing that they, they will in some places. Now, in other places in the world, you know, they, they don't. And what you end up with is, is a situation like China where it's just, it's just too, too tough to, to fight. You know, you, once they have enough control, um, it's too difficult to organize. And so that's what China I worry about. Kind of the, China's kind of the envy of our tech industry and certainly of like democratic establishment and republic, maybe Republicans a little. Well, yeah. They, they want to shut down the dissent. They want to, in a totalitarian way, in an authoritarian way, tell you. I mean, this, that's what the mandate thing is, kind of, to a large extent, right? Well, I, I think, yeah, China to me is like, a corporate wet dream, right? Because it's, it's politically unfree, uh, but, but you, it, it's, uh, it, it allows for profiteering without, without political dissent. So, you know, that, that's the direction that I would worry, I, I worry about us going in this, this air, this place where we have, you know, instead of intense internet surveillance, we, we, don't have benefits or rights or organization um, to de- to defend those things. Like that's why it's, I think it's significant when institutions like the ACLU collapse and stop fulfilling their o- their old mission, or when unions start disappearing, or you know when be- because that the, those uh, liberal institutions that that used to provide some pushback against. Um, against commercial power when when they when they stop functioning it just makes it easier for for um you know 
for corporate power to take hold. So I, I worry about that a lot, but I, I just, I hope Glenn's right that, you know, Westerners and Americans are just generally feisty enough that they, they won't take it lying down. And they, um, they have so far. I mean, there's been 30, 40 years of, of being beat down. That's true. That's true. Country. The way I see it is that the, the establishment has allowed the average American to live comfortably enough to not want to protest. And, and these pro the protests, small ones, or and keeping people having to work two, three, four jobs, they don't have time to protest, and they don't have the ability to. Like, there's a strike here in Denver recently, and I was proud of those people because they're just grocery workers. They a lot of them don't make a great salary, but they took a stand and they got a big concession out of Kroger, um, King Supers is the name of the the Kroger grocery store here, and but it's just small and small. I know we're seeing more and more strikes and more and more pushes for unionization at places like Amazon and, and Starbucks and, and other places. But, you know, there needs to be like a general strike in my opinion, uh, just complete stoppage. Like the truckers could do it or all the grocery workers could just go out and stop. But there's a, a fear built into American capitalism that prevents people from thinking they can take that stand and that risk. And it's the complacency that this that this system creates that I think frightens me more towards your direction and less towards Glenn's. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's hope we're both wrong. Um, I hope you know, so. I, 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 I do think, you know, that they've reached the point you talked about people living comfortably enough that they don't protest. Well, I think that, that ship's kind of sailed. I mean, the, the reason... One of the reasons Trump got elected, one of the reasons Bernie rose in the Democratic Party is, you know, people are, they're, they're out of, uh, you know, they've exhausted their, you know, emergency funds. Uh, they've been running on empty for a long time. And that's why they're making decisions that are way, way out of what they, uh, you know, the scope of what they would have, um, you know, supported previously. So, uh, All right. but, uh, anyway, thanks. Thanks so much. Uh, uh, what, what, Chris. Oh, Chris, right. Thanks very much, Chris. I appreciate it. I'm going to take one more and then I got to, you know, I'm back on daddy duty. So, uh, thanks. Thanks, Chris. And then I'm going to go on to, um, Andrew, I think is next. No, hang on. Hello, Matt. Hello, Andrew. Thanks for doing the show. This has been a great one. I just wanted to quickly tie up uh, a couple of thoughts together. Um, so basically, I think it goes back to who gets to control what the ideas of harm is. And I think that we have a better chance of uh, attacking the philosophical foundations of some of these things and the technological foundations because we're outgunned by the corporate state on that level. But uh, we can push back against the ideas they're using. And one of these ideas is that they can uh, basically, these liberals, these CEOs who are in, informed by largely experts, a lot of the times funded by government, like from Ned or the German Marshall Fund, who are telling these CEOs what the right opinions are, they get to decide what harm is. And so that's why misinformation is dangerous and they get to shut it down is because it leads to harm. And so we get to see that reflected in all kinds of avenues and whether it's the medical uh, side of things or war, 
Um, we're talking about the trucker protests. One of the things that's going on right now, I don't know if you've heard about this, is there was a Facebook group shut down by Facebook that was a California to D.C. 2022 U.S. trucker convoy, and they shut it down on the grounds of Q, literally QAnon policy violations. <laughs> I swear to God. And so now the group denies this. So you can okay, you just sneak a few Q people in and you can just ruin anything and now Facebook can shut it down and this is a protest that's not gonna it's gonna be hindered at least by this uh and so what happens when you apply this to the next war, this kind of framework to the next war we have, whether it's in Ukraine or Yemen or in Asia, and we have dissenters like we did when it, what some of us did when we invaded Iraq the second time. What kind of misinformation and harm policy is going to be applied there? You know, it, it's just going to go so out of control. And it, I, we need to put a stop to it. Uh, yeah, got to do it through philosophical grounds because we don't have the means on the technological grounds. Right. Absolutely. Uh, Andrew, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, I think that this is what people haven't thought through about this whole censorship thing. Uh, They they tend to be hyper-focused on some little example, uh, or maybe it's not even a little example. They'll say, oh, well, so-and-so on Joe Rogan's show said ivermectin absolutely prevents uh you know covid and that's misinformation and we can't have that well okay great right that that's that's probably true it's not proven um you know i've talked to doctors who believe it does work i've talked to doctors who believe it absolutely does not work right uh but let's just say a consensus of people believes that that's that's false Almost everything else is a, is a matter of opinion. Like the, one of the things that, that Rogan got criticized for um, was saying, well, if I were 21 and healthy, you know, would I, would I recommend that you take this vaccine? Well, no, right? Well, that's not, a, that's not misinformation. That's an opinion you, you disagree with, right? <laughs> like you, you can look, you can look at the, at the, uh, all the data and say, yeah, probably, you know, you're, you're going to be, you know, according to the, uh, the bulk of scientists, you, you might be better off having the vaccine or you might be less likely to get really, really sick. Um, uh, but you know, it's, it's not, it's not a clear cut, easy question. Like, um, you know, you, you should also, Individuals should be free to to uh, make the decision about what what level of risks they're willing to tolerate. So what ends up happening is you get people who are make, who are taking really qualitative questions and they're defining them in terms of absolutes and as you say, as you put it, harm. And once the wrong people are in that position of you know, being the deciders, right? They're the, the, the people who are going to do the judging of what is what is and is not harm. Um, then we're in for all kinds of trouble. Like, uh, you know, what 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 if they misuse that power? Well, they probably will. Of course, they will. They are. I mean, they already have. Uh, it, it, it's been abundantly clear that um, you know they're deranking certain people and they're upranking others and. Uh, and yes, you know, we're, we're already seeing, 
um, you know, this, these really hyper intense campaigns to downplay, uh, you know, the fact that the government has been wrong or that, you know, the pharmaceutical companies have been wrong about all sorts of things. Um, but they want us to hyper focus on these, these examples of individuals who've committed harm. Um, but the, but the biggest danger of all is, yeah, what if, what if they lie to us about getting into a war that, you know, or, or you know, prevents a legitimate political movement or affects an election uh, by, by removing, you know, an important news story uh, ahead of an election? Somebody is going to be in that position of making those decisions because there is no sort of uh, infallible arbiter of truth. I mean, it's a, there's, there's an illusion out there that that exists. And it doesn't exist. And um, that's why we need we need to have an absolutely free press, because the only thing that prevents us from falling into the trap of being told what's true uh, by people who have a tendency to lie is the existence of critics, you know, who who are sometimes crazy. Uh, In fact, you know, they, they might they may even often be crazy, but you have to allow them because very if if. If they're not allowed, then people will assume nothing is true. They won't. They won't believe anything. They will be. They'll become cynics, and and it will cut off legitimate avenues of, of political dissent when they're needed. And you know we can't have that either. So um, anyway, I agree wholeheartedly with, with what you're saying. That's if if you if you're at the point where you're cutting off. Um, a trucker page on the grounds that it violates your QAnon policy. Um, you know, that, that should tell you an awful lot about what this content moderation movement um, is about and, uh, and how it can be misused. So uh, anyway, Andrew, thanks so much for that question. And thanks for everybody who came out today. Uh, had a ton of listeners. Uh, this was a lot of fun. Thanks to Glenn uh, for, for, for coming out earlier. And I will put this up as soon as I can. And uh, I'll see you all uh, again soon, I hope. Uh, Thanks a lot, Matt. All right. Thanks a lot, Andrew. Take care. All right.